morning once again. We're grateful that you're here, and if you are new to the Bible and you do not have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one off of our resource table in the back. We're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 11th chapter, and so we invite you to turn your Bible to Luke 11. And once again, if you're new to the Bible, the large numbers in your Bible are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses. And so we're going to be in Luke 11, verses 37 through 54 today. I enjoy when uh, people get worked up and you get to hear uh, the insanity that comes out of people's mouths when they're, when they're really worked up. Uh, I like when people, when my least favorite sports teams, when the announcers of those teams are worked up about the terrible decisions that, Tony, I mean, that the managers make uh, for their teams. And uh, people get worked up about all kinds of matters. Their food not arriving at their table at the right temperature. Uh, an employee not honoring a sale price when the sale ended days or weeks ago. People get really worked up about all kinds of minor issues, but in our passage today, maybe it's going to surprise you that Jesus is fairly worked up in this passage. Maybe you wouldn't expect Jesus to be that person who is, who is um, worked up a bit. We know that Jesus is gentle and lowly, so maybe it, this doesn't seem to fit with our conception of who Jesus is. Maybe this passage doesn't seem like Jesus is a very gentle person when you read a passage like this. Uh, it actually is him being gentle, maybe in a surprising way. We'll come back to that later on, about how this actually shows Jesus being loving and gentle. But we're going to consider today verses 37 through 54, the last portion of chapter 11. Uh, in our passage last week, we saw Jesus say that he has let the light shine on people, and that light should change us from the inside out. And now he's going to show us an example of people who weren't changed from the inside out, who hadn't actually let the light shine onto the inside of their hearts. It is our responsibility, humanly speaking, to respond to the word of God, to believe what God has said to be the truth and to repent of the ways that our hearts have rebelled against him. And this is a passage indicating that there there were people in Jesus' day who were not repenting of of what uh, of the evil in their hearts and were not aware of their sinfulness before God. I'm going to read verses 37 through 54. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You're welcome to follow along with whatever copy of the Word of God you have, but uh, listen along as I read verse 37 and following here in Luke 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering." As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Years ago, shortly after Clarissa and I were married, we did a variety of odd jobs on the weekends just to help supplement our income. We were very poor at that stage in our lives, and so anything we could do, whether it be me doing some yard work or us doing some cleaning projects together, things like that, anything we could do was a help. Well, we came across a, uh, a moving job. We had a pickup truck at the time, which was a source of contention in our marriage in our early days, but it's what I brought into the marriage, and so I thought, you know, one of these job listings that I came across was we need... Uh, somebody to help move some boxes from one house to the other. I was like, I have a pickup truck. I can move boxes. That sounds very cut and dry. It was much better than some of the other options that were far uh, more subjective. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to sign up for that job. I contacted the, the homeowner who needed these boxes moved. I assumed it was something like moving, you know, 10 boxes of files over to my office or something like that. Well, it was actually a lady saying, I need to move from one house to another. And she didn't tell us this, but she was a hoarder. And so by saying, I have boxes that need to be moved, it meant that she had every JCPenney catalog from the 1980s on, and they were all in boxes, and they were all mildewy, and she had an entire garage behind her house just packed with boxes. And she also didn't tell us that she was moving from a relatively decent-sized house to a far smaller house, but that she wasn't going to throw anything away. None of that was laid out on the table for us. So I actually got quite a few friends to help us with this project, and uh, I've never dealt with anybody quite like this lady before, but essentially what she was, uh, you know, we would just simply call her, she was a hoarder, and it was difficult. You actually couldn't open the door into one of the rooms that she wanted us to empty out for her because there was so much leaning up against the door. She had accumulated a lifetime of materials, almost all of which was trash. I mean, I don't mean to be mean by that, but like she had an empty pickle jar in the sink and she didn't want us to throw that away because you never know when you might need that empty pickle jar. The entire attic of this house, which is probably about the size of the parsonage next door, uh, the entire attic was full of empty boxes. Like here's the coffee maker box and the toaster box and on and on. And she wasn't willing to throw any of those boxes away because you never know when you might need a cardboard box. So when she meant, I need you to move some boxes, I mean, she meant like, I need you to move empty boxes from one house to another, and that other house was far smaller uh, than the house we were were emptying out. The point I'm trying to make, and I'll tell you a little more detail about it as we get into the uh, the sermon later on, but um, the point I'm trying to make was she had accumulated so many items that she couldn't imagine life any other way. That's the simple point I'm trying to make. She had... I believe from what we could gather from looking through her belongings, she had probably been married before, and you would guess there had probably been some, some tremendous heartache in her life, and perhaps this is psychologically you know, contributed to the way that she's living now. But 
It was as if she couldn't imagine life any other way. She had built up so much stuff in her life that now her life was stuck the way it was and there was no going back. In our passage today, we see the Pharisees who have actually done the same thing with their laws. They have, ac- they have accumulated one law on top of another, on top of another, on top of another in such a way that now they can't even see the problem around them. And so when Jesus comes into this passage and says, you've taken the word of God and defiled it by adding law upon law upon law, they couldn't see it that way. And they actually looked at this as a tremendous threat to them. As this lady that I was just talking about saw it as a tremendous threat when we suggested throwing away an empty pickle jar. But for these Pharisees, eliminating any of these laws that they've added onto the word of God was a tremendous threat to them. And so when Jesus approaches these religious systems that these Pharisees have developed, and I'll explain what a Pharisee is in a little bit, it was a shattering experience for them. What we could say is that Jesus shatters religious expectations. He takes what people think to be the gospel and he actually destroys it. And he says, no, 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 you've added onto the gospel in such a way that it's not even the gospel anymore. Jesus shatters religious expectations, and so we as his people, we as those who want to follow Jesus, must then submit to his definition of what is righteousness. Submit to Jesus' definition, not our own, not our preconceived ones, not the ones where we have added box upon box or law upon law of righteousness. We listen to what Jesus says is the truth, and we submit to that. He shattered the expectations of what it looks like to be a holy person or a well-respected person by condemning eight patterns of living. And I want to, as we walk through this passage today, expose you to what these eight patterns of living were that Jesus was specifically condemning. The first is in verses 37 through 41, where Jesus condemns being focused on externals over internal realities. Jesus condemns being focused on externals over matters of the heart, we could say. And so Jesus, uh, in the passage last week, was teaching a large crowd. It says that the crowds were increasing in verse 29, and part of that crowd was the religious establishment, the holy people, the people who upheld the word of God. Uh, The Pharisees, one of their responsibilities, and particularly a subset of the Pharisees, was to copy the word of God so that there was more than just a few copies of the Bible for people to read. And so these people were very well acquainted with the word of God because they, for a living, wrote out the Word of God so that other people could have it in their hands, so that, there were, uh, so that every new synagogue would have a new copy of the Scriptures, things like that. So, when, uh, when Jesus is talking, these people who know the Word of God very well got offended because what they were hearing wasn't what they had kind of built up in their minds to be spirituality. And as Jesus was speaking, one of these Pharisees, for some reason or another, asked Jesus to dine with him. We actually don't know why he did that. Luke's not interested in giving that detail, so we can hypothesize about it, but it's not super important. Maybe one of the reasons, though, was because he had um, just jarred them so badly that they didn't even really know what to make of Jesus anymore. So they thought, let's just get him alone and see if we can get to the bottom of why he is the way he is and who he thinks he is enough to, to counter all that we've believe for hundreds of years at this point. And so Jesus agreed to go in 
which was very kind of him, and it shows that his heart is for people, that he actually wanted them to know the truth. He wasn't trying to hide from these people, even though perhaps he knew that their motives may not have been the best. But he goes in, and it says he reclined at the table, which we've seen in other passages here, basically means that if the table is like a spoke in the middle of the room, they're, they're, uh, or kind of like the hub in the middle of the room, they're kind of like spokes coming out of it, this kind of laying in such a way that they're going to eat together that way. And he goes in and just joins the party, the dinner party, here with this Pharisee. And we assume there were many other Pharisees, and we actually know that from verse 45, that one of the lawyers there uh, was, was engaged in this conversation. But as people came into this room to have dinner together, as was the custom, everybody just walked over to a basin and started washing their hands. And this actually wasn't for hygienic purposes, like maybe when we call our kids to the dinner, we say, make sure you wash your hands when you come to the table. This was actually just a way of saying, like, make sure you get the the worldliness off your hands because you've been out in the world all day and you've been encountering sinners and you don't want to have any of that garbage attached to you. So wash your hands as you come into the room. Again, it wasn't to wash off germs. It was to wash off the corruption that you've picked up and accumulated as the day has gone on. And Jesus didn't do that. Once again, Luke doesn't tell us why didn't Jesus do that. Did he do it to be provocative? Maybe so. Maybe to show them, you guys have added things here that are really not essential. And so the Pharisee was astonished. Did he say anything about it? Maybe he just kind of, kind of like, there you go, guys, proof, just like we thought. He's not as pure as, we, as he thinks he is. But it, it doesn't actually record him saying anything. But verse 39 shows that Jesus picked up on, on the impression they were getting of him. The Pharisee was astonished. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's like that, I didn't intend it to talk about this, but that jar of pickles. Like you can make the outside real nice, but if you leave the inside filthy, it's kind of gross. And that's what these people were doing, metaphorically speaking. I do think this is a metaphor. It says if Jesus is saying, uh, you know, you leave your, your actual dishes dirty on the inside, that's dumb. There's no reason to do that because that's where you put the food. But spiritually speaking, it's even worse. You can make yourself look real nice on the outside, but the inside is very corrupt. And you know people like this. You've at least heard of people like this who are the epitome of a hypocrite. And so they major on helping people avoid the the taints of the world, but then you find out that they're involved in some secret scandal. So they're involved with uh, their focus on externals over the matters of the heart. And Jesus condemns this by calling these people fools, which in the Bible, a fool isn't just like an idiot in our you know, common vocabulary, but, but really just somebody who refuses to walk the way of God, someone who thinks that they've figured out their own way of living in a way that's going to, to work best for them. But Jesus exposes the hypocrisy in this by saying, You've really focused on the outer part of your life without even examining the fact that your heart before God is wicked, that your inclinations are against God at their very core. And he does this, again, metaphorically through talking about this cup and this dish. But as part of the internal problem, we see that he exposes two particular sins in these Pharisees' lives. In verse 39, he says, "...inside you're full of greed and wickedness." And elsewhere in the book of Luke, how does Jesus or John the Baptist in some cases tell people to show repentance when greed is at the heart of the problem? 
He tells them to be generous. So back in chapter 3, when Jesus is talk, or when John the Baptist is talking to people uh, at the Jordan River, he's, uh, these people asked John, so how would we show repentance? And he responded to them and said, give to somebody who is in need food or a tunic or uh, other supplies. And so here Jesus is saying, the way you can show repentance and show an inward heart of humility as opposed to just outward conformity is by being generous. So instead of uh, internalizing greed, he says, you give as alms those things that are within, which I think is a way of him saying, give from your heart. Instead of hoarding up things inside, give from your heart. And as a result, you'll see that, that this continual uh, move toward humility will, will result in, in repentance. So let's just be very clear that we actually don't make ourselves pure on the inside by giving things away, which is what it appears to be what Jesus is, is saying here, is give things away and you'll be holy. Actually, you are demonstrating that you have a heart of repentance, is what he's saying. So you have a heart of repentance, which results in you giving and being generous and refusing to submit to the sins of greed and wickedness in this way. So simply what Jesus is doing here is, is telling these Pharisees to focus on the heart rather than just on uh, external uh, realities or, or looking nice on the outside. Just to be clear, in verse 40, did not he who made the outside, this is a way of referring to God. God is the one who made the outside and he made the inside. So Luke is, or Jesus is simply saying, God is just as concerned with the inside as the outside. You've done a nice job making yourself look spiritual, but inside you're like an, a, a dead Uh, a dead man. So be clean both inside and out is essentially what Jesus is saying here. Focus on the inside, not just the outside. The second condemnation here is in verse 42, and Jesus condemns these spiritual leaders for majoring on minors while ignoring the majors altogether. They majored on minors. They made minor issues into bigger deals than they should be. Verse 42 here is the first of six woes. And so what I would recommend personally is either highlighting or underlining or using colored pencils or something like that to expose where all the woes are because as you understand where the repeated words and phrases are in a passage, you really begin to see what the heart of the passage is about. There's no way that we should read this passage as Jesus patting people on the back. There are plenty of passages where Jesus do that. But when you read a bunch of woes, you kind of get the the sense of what the passage is. So I would recommend that you point these out to yourself, uh, either in your notes or in your Bible, perhaps even better, by underlining where these woes are. Verse 42 is the first one, and a woe here is the idea of, of feeling pity because you're going to experience judgment. I think that's, that's probably one way we can look at that. And even if you don't have you know, a, a Bible dictionary to help you figure out what is a woe, one way you can kind of figure this out and create a homemade definition, a definition that works for you for your purposes, is to see where else are woes talked about in the Bible. And we saw already that they're talked about in Luke 6. But if you, all, if you just do a search, and one of my favorite resources online is called literalword.org, Org, I think is what it is, O-R-G. And so that brings up a little search box, and you can type in the word woe, W-O-E. And it'll show you everywhere in the Bible where that, uh, where that word shows up. You can also just type in a particular passage and have that come up and things like that. So it's a great resource, but what I'm saying is if you search for the word woe, you're going to see, let's say, dozens of places where the word shows up. 
And then you can start to figure out, okay, here Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Well, that means he's obviously taking it very seriously to preach the gospel. I don't think he's actually condemning himself to hell by saying, uh, by saying this. So we can kind of begin to see, okay, so he's saying this would be a pity this would be a shame for me to not preach the gospel. And you can go on to other passages like, Woe is me in the book of Isaiah because I am a man undone. I am a, an unclean person. Uh, you can see the Philistines say in 1 Samuel 4, Woe to us when they were facing a plague uh, from God. And so essentially when they're saying, Woe is us, they're saying, Pity us because we're being judged. And so you begin to see that there's, there's a hint of judgment in a woe. There's also a hint of sorrow But essentially, when we see these woes, we could say Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you need to take warning. You should feel bad for yourselves. You should take warning because you will soon be judged for your hypocritical attitudes and actions. So these woes are warnings, are trying to get their attention as a a way of saying uh, you have something bad coming for you you if you don't repent very soon. And here in verse 42, the woe is for majoring on minors while ignoring the majors. So what are the majors? What are the things that they were actually supposed to be focusing on? In verse 42, these would be neglecting justice and the love of God. What other passage in Luke does that sound like? To me, that sounds like one we just saw a couple of weeks ago, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what was the emphasis in that passage is that you should love God and love your neighbor. And the, the lawyer got it right in that passage. Like he, remember we said, he got an A plus when he answered Jesus' question. What does the law say? Love God, love your neighbor. Here Jesus is saying the same thing. You, as someone who claims to follow God, should serve other people. That would be don't neglect justice. Serve the poor. Take care of the needy. And love God. Show love for God here. Instead of doing those things, those things have been left to the side. What have the Pharisees done a really good job at? Doing things that the Bible doesn't even require, like tithing every single herb from your garden. So tithing in the, in the Old Testament was a way of supporting the Levites, who you know, their work was in the temple, and then the Levites would give a tithe of their income to the high priest, who again, his work's in the, in the temple, so he shouldn't be out gardening. He shouldn't be out in the fields getting food for himself. So how is he supposed to eat? By people tithing, by people serving uh, the economy in this way. So tithing is good. Jesus is not minimizing that. Tithing was, was the Old Testament economy for how God's people served one another and obeyed God in, in serving God's people that way. But here, they have made that into such an emphasis that now they're giving every last part of their herbs, like mint, and I didn't even know what rue was. It's not really a popular ingredient in our dishes today, at least here in America. Uh, But essentially taking every last herb from your garden and saying, here, I'm going to give a little bit of this, I'm going to give a little bit of that, and doing things that God didn't even necessarily command, but doing it because well, I know I'm supposed to tithe in general, so this will keep me from possibly getting close to breaking that law of God. And so you add a layer on top of a layer on top of a layer so that you don't even get close to possibly disobeying God. All while not doing the main things that God tells you to do of loving God and loving your neighbor. So Jesus condemns majoring on minors while ignoring the majors. 
Third is in verse 43, living for recognition and praise from others. Jesus condemns this spirit of wanting people's adulation, wanting people's attention. You love the best seat in the synagogue. So you go to worship, you go to hear the word of God read and prayers offered to the Lord, and you go and you want to sit in the place where everybody's going to see how spiritual you are. Make sure that nobody can miss the fact that you were there and that you were sitting really close to where the passages were being read and things. And you, you love it when people go out of their way to greet you because it makes you feel really important. So they were living for recognition. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be recognized as spiritual authorities, as being important. Basically saying, if people don't see what I do, then what's the point in doing it? Maybe to serve other people? Well, that's dumb. Why would you do that? <laughs> Basically, we should live for the praise of God, not for the praise of man. So often you'll see uh, campaigns. People need finances for a particular new building. So the people who are trying to get people to give toward that building say, if you give this certain amount, you're going to be a platinum member or you're going to be a diamond member. You're going to be a a gold member. And with each of those contributions, you're going to get a particular gift. And one of those gifts is you're going to get your name on a plaque. And what they're tapping into is the fact that People like to be recognized. It's actually probably better to just give gifts anonymously in a situation like that rather than saying, I'm going to you know, make sure that I get my name on this and get praise for generations to come for helping build this building. But why would you do that if you're not spiritually minded? There's no reason you would do that. So, of course, I want my name on a plaque. Well, Jesus is, is recognizing that that the Pharisees had picked up on this idea. It actually feels really good when people recognize me. And Jesus is saying, no, do what you do for the praise of God, not for praise from others. Don't live for recognition. Jesus also condemned them in verse 44 for ignoring the corrupting influence of their lives and teaching. This was one you kind of have to scratch your head about a little bit because it's a simile and there were no other similes in this passage. Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves. That's the simile. The word simile just means you use the word like or as. It's similar to something. You are similar to an unmarked grave. In what way are these Pharisees like an unmarked grave? Again, like I said, you kind of have to think about this one, scratch your head about it a little bit. But you realize that in the Old Testament, it was defiling to come in contact with a dead person. And if the dead person was underground in a grave that was unmarked, people were actually walking over a dead person without even realizing it. So what is Jesus saying here? In what way are these Pharisees like dead people or like an unmarked grave? Basically, he's saying that these, that these um, citizens were coming into contact with the Pharisees and were being defiled by it without even realizing it. You defile people, Jesus is saying, by your teaching as they come in contact with you. That's pretty harsh. That's a strong condemnation. Not only are you, you know, just speaking in an unclear way, you're actually speaking in a way that hurts other people when they hear your teaching. So they're ignoring the corrupting influence of their lives and teaching. Verses 45 and 46, the fifth sin for which Jesus condemns these Pharisees is for weighing people down with the law. Now, I love in verse 45 where one of these lawyers who especially was 
aware of the word of God, was kind of like the academic elite among the Pharisees themselves. It was kind of like, uh, just want to let you know, Jesus, like we appreciate what you're saying and all, but this is kind of offensive. And he's like, woe to you too! Like, do you not realize that I'm talking to you this whole time? And you just imagine if you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I thought you didn't want to offend me. No, he's like, I'm quite fine if I offend you too. Because you're part of the problem here. Aren't you aware that you're weighing people down by making it seem complicated to obey God and to live the Christian life, basically. Where else have we seen a lawyer? Well, in the same parable of the Good Samaritan we just talked about a few minutes ago. And lawyers knew the Word of God well, but that didn't mean they loved God well. And Jesus was condemning them for weighing people down, for making it difficult to obey God So he says, you load people with burdens hard to bear. You just keep adding one law after another, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And I don't think that necessarily means that they're disobeying the law. I think it just means that they're not helping the people, not not encouraging them and discipling them, essentially, in, in how to walk with God. You're just saying, walk with God, and then leaving them. Kind of like telling somebody, go swim, and never telling them, you know, take some swimming lessons while you're at it. Uh, that would be a helpful way to help them learn to swim. Go love God and then just leave them alone. That would be unhelpful and Jesus condemns them for this haughty spirit. Number six is being complicit in the death of God's servants. Verses 47 through 51. So essentially, you read of Old Testament prophets being killed for the message that God had given them for speaking the truth, for telling people, repent and believe the gospel, for telling people, uh, say, for instance, in the book of Amos, help the poor, and you just go your own way. Well, Amos was not a popular prophet because of his message, because of what he was communicating on behalf of God to these people. And so, now you have really nice tombs to commemorate. Here's where the prophet Jeremiah uh, is buried, and here's where the prophet Isaiah is buried, and you're the ones building the, 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 um, the tombs, the graves, you know, the really nice gravestone markers as a way of saying, look at this perfect servant of God, but you're actually related to the people who killed them. And he says, you're complicit in this because you're actually continuing the practice. And there's some irony in this because ultimately they're going to kill Jesus. The Pharisees are the ones who really push to get Jesus crucified, who is himself a prophet, who is himself offending them. And so there's some irony in this passage in the sense that they're going to continue doing what their own fathers did. So they're complicit in the death of God's servants. You might read this this, uh, comment about Abel and Zechariah in verse 51. You'd say, so what is this even talking about? So Abel, if you're familiar at all with the early parts of Genesis, is the first person who dies in the Bible. He's killed the first martyr, we could say, because he was a righteous person. And so that's essentially what this is saying is uh, you're responsible for the death of the first martyr, the first person who was killed for his righteousness, and the last, and that's Zechariah. And you might think, so where is this talked about? It's in Second Chronicles 24. And you might think, okay, so my Old Testament, let me just show this to you here. My Old Testament, let's just say it goes to right here. and It's not exactly, but you can't see that. Okay, so here's my Old Testament. And so here's Abel, we're just going to put that right at the beginning, and here's Zechariah. Well, no, Second Chronicles like right in the middle here. Well, here's the issue. Our English Bibles are laid out differently than the Hebrew Bible was. 
So 2 Chronicles was the last book of Jesus' Bible, of the Old Testament uh, in Jesus' day, in other words. So this is kind of a way of saying, from Genesis to Revelation, you're responsible for all the prophets who have died in between there. So Abel to Zechariah, the first prophet and the last prophet who were killed for what they were preaching. And he's saying, you are complicit in this because you're continuing. You have the same ungodly attitudes toward all those who preach the word of God toward you. And this comes back to the fact that your heart is wicked. That you actually don't care about what God says. You just want to make yourself look really spiritual on the outside. Verse 52, the seventh sin that Jesus condemns here is refusing to teach the truth clearly to others and refusing to believe it personally. These Pharisees refuse to teach the truth clearly and refuse to believe it personally. So he says, Woe to you lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You've taken away the clarity of the word of God. You've made it complicated to know what God says. You did not enter yourselves. Didn't enter what? Well, when you read the parallel passage in Matthew, it's you didn't enter the kingdom of God. You didn't even believe what you were reading in the Bible yourself. And you made it difficult for those who were wanting to follow God. So they were complicating the word of God. And then the last sin that this passage condemns is actually implicit from verses 53 and 54. And it's here, refusing to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They've had enough. The scribes and the Pharisees are up to their, they've had it. They've up to their ears or up to their eyes, whatever that expression is in disgust with what God has said, with what Christ has said specifically. Because they don't realize here that he's saying these things because he is himself God. And so they want to catch him. They want to find some way they can accuse him so they can kill him on that basis. So they're lying in wait for him as if trying to capture a wild lion that has escaped in the streets. They're trying to catch him in something he might say so they can accuse him, so they can kill him and not have to hear what in their minds was the garbage coming out of his mouth. He was speaking the truth to them. He was doing it in love and they were blind to that reality. These are the eight sins that this passage condemns. And when I read this passage, maybe you have the same response. I kind of want to ask myself, where do people get the idea that Jesus is like this teddy bear? <laughs> that, that he is constantly affirming of however you want to live. You know, uh, Jesus has got my back in whatever personal sin habit that I have. I'm not seeing that in this passage here. seems to me like Jesus is not going to pat you on the back for your pride, for your defensiveness, for your blame shifting, for your self-righteousness. He has no time for any of that. But there actually is a sense, and I talked about this at the beginning, there is a sense in which this passage shows us the gentleness of Jesus. We say he's gentle and lowly from Matthew 11. Who is he gentle toward here? He's gentle toward those who are truly brokenhearted before God. Those who truly want to, to know God and walk with him. People who see that they're bankrupt before God, that they are spiritually bankrupt. They could never keep God's law. Jesus is defending those people. Jesus is actually going to bat for the least of these. For he's defending the defenseless, in a sense. He was worked up because the wicked leaders were making God seem inapproachable. And Jesus said, that is wickedness. 
What Jesus does is show that the way to God is not through adding more laws, but by throwing themselves on a merciful God who is full of compassion, is gracious, and is dripping with love for those who know that they can never save themselves. Who are the people he's going after in this story? They're actually enemies. The Pharisees here are enemies. They're in the same family tree as people like Pharaoh and Goliath and Saul, Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, and Herod. They're people who are out to destroy those who are humble before God. But where the wicked, proud people are cast down, the humble people, the God-fearing people, are lifted up. These are the people like Noah, like Hannah, like David, like Mary, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Esther and Mordecai, those who kiss the sun from Psalm 2 find refuge in Christ, not those who perfectly obey God's law because there is no one like that. Those who rage and plot against Christ, like here the, the Pharisees do in verses 53 and 54, Those who rage and plot against God and his people will perish, Psalm 2 tells us. So these enemies, in the form of Pharisees, lose. Just like all those others I mentioned, the Pharaohs of the world, the Goliaths of the world, the Hamans of the world, all lose because they are opposed to God. So you could sit here and read this story and say, well, clearly the main point is don't be a hypocrite. That is a point. We should definitely take this to heart. We should look for the ways we see similarities between ourselves and the Pharisees. But is that the reason that Luke told Theophilus this story? Like, you've got to get this part because you might be a hypocrite too. Again, there are warnings for all of us here, and we need to take them to heart. But maybe another possibility is that Luke wanted to tell Theophilus the story that, so that there would be clarity in his mind that we cannot muddy what holiness looks like before God. We cannot muddy the way to God. Don't tolerate people who make the gospel complicated. Like you can follow God as long as you do X, Y, and Z as well. It's Phariseeism and Jesus condemns it. The main reason he told this story is so that Theophilus and we would realize that our holiness is an internal gift from God, not an external production of our own righteous habits. You don't get to God because you met the standard. You actually are condemned because you did not meet the standard. Our internal holiness reveals itself through our external actions. But our internal holiness, our right heart before God, is not the basis for our forgiveness. Because even on our very best day spiritually, you are not good enough for God. You are not matching the glory of God. You have fallen short of the glory of God. So be aware of thinking that you can earn God's love and God's favor and God's righteousness through your external habits, through your appearances before other people. Romans 3.20 tells us that by works of the law, no one is justified. It simply means no one receives forgiveness because of their spiritual performance. These Pharisees, if they did not repent as a result of listening to Jesus, and we certainly have no reason to think they repented, at least by and large, when you read verses 53 and 54. That's not repentance. That's hardening themselves against what Christ has said. 
So no one receives forgiveness because of their spiritual performance. They receive forgiveness because they recognize they're spiritually bankrupt and they turn to God for forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' obedience, not on the basis of their own. That lady that Clarissa and I helped move, as we came to the end of that day, I think we had told her, we will help you move your things until 4 o'clock. I think it was from like 8 till 4 that day. So we're going to give you 8 hours. And at 4 o'clock, we're going to have to leave no matter where we are because she had so much stuff and she was unwilling to let us throw anything away. And again, I probably had five or six friends helping us. We got to 4 o'clock and she had so many belongings packed into that house that we had gotten to the point where we just had to start piling everything up in her yard. Front yard, backyard, her whole yard was covered in all of her belongings. And that's what she wanted. That's what she told us to do. And then 4 o'clock came, and I kid you not, at 4.01, it started to pour rain. So all of her precious possessions were instantly soaked. Her boxes of 1987 J.C. Penney catalogs were being poured on. And all of her precious belongings were all of a sudden of no value, if they had any value before that moment. The additional laws that the Pharisees created actually destroyed them, actually ruined their hearts before God. If they didn't heed Jesus, all these extra things that they had piled on, that they had accumulated, were actually going to destroy them as that lady's belongings were destroyed themselves. We need to listen to Christ, to his definition of righteousness not to our man-made, self-centered ones. We trust in his obedience, not in our own. We put our faith in the sufficiency of what Christ has done, not in what we can do. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray you would build in us humility, a recognition of our bankruptcy before you. Woe is us if we think that we can save ourselves, but blessed are we if we lean on the work of Christ, and in Him alone. In His name we pray. Amen.